So good evening, LCM. Good evening. Tonight we'll be studying Acts chapter 15 together. Sadly, we're not going to be reviewing Acts chapter 14 because we wouldn't finish Acts chapter 15 if we did. The impact of this chapter is often missed by modern students precisely because it deals with issues that have literally been solved for 2,000 years as a result of this chapter. That's true. That means that you're going to have to peel back the 2,000 years of history so that you can appreciate what happens in our text tonight. The truth is this may be the most pivotal chapter in all of the book of Acts, if not the Bible itself. We're going to see how the apostles, elders, and believing community solve the most difficult problems of their time. We're going to see what their method of leadership looked like and how their decisions were put into practice. We're going to see what it looked like for them to wrestle with scriptural truths as they worked to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit that would inform their actions. Everything about Acts 15 is supremely practical, and it will instruct you in the methods that facilitate your own ministry and your own participation in ministry within the believing community. Acts chapter 15 doesn't show, just show you how to minister. Acts 15 is literally the chapter that gives you as a Gentile access to the ministry of the body of Christ wow. while still remaining a Gentile. Yeah. Wow. This access was planned by Adonai in ancient days past. But it was only disclosed to the saints with clarity during the council of Acts chapter 15. You get an idea how important this chapter is? <laughs> so let's prepare ourselves to engage with this monumental council meeting by reviewing and familiarizing ourselves with the major participants in the discussion. We would like to discuss four main parties that are pertinent to the council. So we're going to discuss the Pharisees first. We have... Unbelieving and believing Pharisees. Luke 7.30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Mm. Acts 15.5 records, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So in these two passages that Luke authored, you see examples of very different kinds of Pharisees. We are most familiar with the first kind because our stereotypes of Pharisees have been formed through their portrayal as antagonists of the gospel. When the word Pharisee is mentioned in modern circles, all we envision are men who rejected Adonai's purpose for themselves and who opposed the gospel. However, that is not the only biblical image that displays Pharisees. No, it's not. Come on now. So consider the second passage on the slide. There were Pharisees who believed and were members of the early community. Men like Nicodemus, who is a named Pharisee in John 3, and Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea, who is a named member of the Jewish ruling council in Luke 23.50. They are good examples of the kind of men that were Pharisees and became believers. Amen. Remember, these are the men that buried Jesus at risk to their own lives. Wow. However, the best example of a believing Pharisee in the book of Acts is Saul of Tarsus. Yeah. Let's read an excerpt from Law Dog to make that point. Read 
shooting straight at a law dog yeah. tonight. Oh, On the note of examples from acts that I, and possibly you, have overlooked or not fully appreciated in the past, read the following scripture and ask yourself if Paul was lying or telling the truth. It's a good question. Yes, it is. Acts 23, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul did not say, I was a Pharisee. He said, I am a Pharisee. I disregarded the truth of Paul's plain statement for years as a mere tactic to influence his trial. This idea is really foolish for a myriad of reasons. But suffice it to say, Paul was no liar. Mm -hmm. The book of Acts clearly reveals the nature of Paul's love for and observance of the Torah. Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 17, Acts 18, Acts 19 all contain accounts of Paul and his companions during his first and second missionary journeys observing Sabbath by attending the synagogue. Luke even records the words, as was his custom, and as usual, when referring to going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. What is more amazing and usually overlooked is that they were initially welcomed and usually asked to speak. <coughs> this could only be because they were perceived by the Jewish community as Torah observant. One possible explanation for Paul repeatedly being asked to speak is that he was viewed as a Pharisee. This agrees with Paul's own words and with the customs of the day in which Pharisees from Jerusalem were invited to teach among diaspora Jews, which are Jews scattered among Gentile nations, of course. Guys, the truth is that the doctrine of the Pharisees was an excellent foundation, yeah. one that prepared many Jewish believers to receive Messiah. It is likely that the majority of Jews who were receptive to the gospel of the kingdom were aligned with the teachings of the Pharisees. It is important to rid yourself of the shallow and unproductive stereotype that obscures this fact. The council meeting that we will be discussing tonight revolves around the concern of believing Pharisees. That's important to get in your head from the beginning. In the end, their scriptural concerns were alleviated by the counsel of God's word and the testimony of the Holy Spirit through the experiences of their brothers. The fact that the convictions of the Pharisees had to be adjusted, well, this does not take away from their noble efforts to raise the concern in the first place. Amen. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. As you approach this chapter, avoid viewing these brothers as enemies. They are not enemies. Amen. They played a vital role in helping to determine one of the most pivotal questions in all the book of Acts. And as always, the difficult question of whether Gentiles could be included in the Messianic faith without taking on the national identity of Israel, well, this was decided in an open discussion that involved two or more witnesses and the word of God that decided the issue for the church of God. Amen. Amen. So first party that we just looked at, 
the Pharisees. Our second party tonight is going to be Peter, and we're doing this in preparation to his role in the Acts 15 Council meeting. Let's look at this slide. This is from our session on Acts 9. The extent to which Peter is being held up like the greatest of Israel's prophets in Acts 9 is usually diminished by people's fascination with the popularity of the Apostle Paul in our time. Anyone reading this story would have marveled at the description of Peter in the same light as the mightiest of all Israel's prophets. Moreover, they would likely recall the discipleship relationship with Elijah and Elisha, and then the discipleship relationship between Jesus and Peter. This would greatly magnify the importance of true biblical discipleship in the minds of everyone encountering this amazing story. You might recall Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and Peter all entered into a room and restricted access to others before performing a miracle. Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and Peter were all summoned from a distance to help a person that was already dead. <laughs> Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and Peter all entered the room with a dead body and resurrected the person to the rejoicing and astonishment of others. Amen. Amen. So since the book of Acts magnifies the deeds and teachings of the body of Christ, it is impossible to miss that Peter excels in the deeds of Jesus. Come on. Yeah. It is true that his sermons are among the first and finest in the book of Acts, but when you encounter Peter's testimony tonight, you should remember that the early community likely recognized the deeds of Peter as being very much like Jesus himself. Amen. Not only was Peter the first person to raise the dead, since Jesus did it, but Peter also was the first person to experience a unique interaction with Gentiles in the home of Simon the Tanner, and then again in the home of Cornelius. So remember some of the things that became evident in Acts chapter 10. Look at our slide. Seven things that were not, say not, not, not directed by Peter. Let's take the first one. Peter did not ask to fall into a trance. That's true. Peter did not ask to see a vision. Also true. Peter did not ask to be visited by three Gentiles. Again, right. Peter did not ask to be told, make no distinction. No, he didn't. Peter did not ask for an angel to appear to Cornelius. Come on, true. Peter did not ask for the angel to tell Cornelius that he and his whole household (laughs) would be saved. Yeah. Peter did not ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon the entire crowd of Gentiles and enable them Ooh, to speak wow. in other tongues. Lord. Our point is that Peter possessed deeds that were like Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Peter taught the first sermons about Jesus to the nation of Israel. When he gives his testimony in Acts 15's council, the reception in the room would have been profound. Peter's going to make the point that the events of Acts 10 were the divine providence of Adonai and not Say not, not, not his personal choice. So this evening, you'll come to understand how powerful testimonies can be when they involve your own correction. Oh, come on! We should also keep in mind that many members of the Jerusalem community have already had discussions with Peter regarding distinctions and cultural taboos that the kingdom of God would kick down. That brings us to our next slide. Diacrino is the issue. So in Acts 10, 20, we saw that Peter was told to get up and go down to accompany men without diacrino menos. This means 
without making a distinction or a separation between himself and them. As the story progressed in Acts 11.2, Peter goes up to Jerusalem, and the circumcision criticized him. They diacrino unto him. This means that they showed a distinction or a separation between themselves and him over his interaction with the Gentiles. 11.12, Peter recounts to the circumcision what the Spirit told him using the word diacrinata. These are all words that have the same root and mean to make a separation. Peter had been reluctant because of a misunderstanding of the law to associate with Gentiles. After his correction in Acts 10, Peter himself became the victim of diacrino. Yeah. Because many of his countrymen were reluctant to associate with him. Now Peter's testimony successfully successfully corrected the community, yeah. and the result was acceptance by everyone. <coughs> in some ways, the events of Acts 11 will do the precursor to the meeting that we will be discussing tonight. Yeah. However, the council meeting tonight will deal with something that goes beyond an isolated <laughs> instance Come on. and will have bearing on how the church yeah. is to receive men of every nation that call in Adonai out of a pure heart. So let's move to our third party that is pertinent to the Acts 15 discussion. So we're on number three of four parties. Barnabas and Paul. In Acts 4.36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That is how Barnabas was introduced. <laughs> Acts 23, 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Pharisees and the other, I'm sorry, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. We tend to think of Barnabas and Paul as Christians. True. This causes us to suddenly divorce them from the Jewish pedigree that both men obviously held and maintained. Barnabas is a Levite who believed in Jesus. Paul is a Pharisee who believed in Jesus. This is significant when considering a council meeting designed to determine whether or not Gentiles must become Jews in order to participate in the early believing community. Another stereotype or misconception that must be dispelled to properly understand the Council of Acts 15 is that Barnabas, and maybe more specifically Paul, became antinomial or anti-law. <laughs> this myth exists from improperly reading the epistles in which Paul corrects misapplications of the law that are subsequent to this council meeting. This clear historical record of Acts conveys several important concepts that must remain in your field of vision to be able to understand the council meeting that we're going to read about. So let's take a look at Paul's own testimony in Acts 22, verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, 
receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness Mm. to all men Mm. of what you have seen and heard. And now what you are, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Paul's own testimony was that Ananias helped to initiate his calling. Ananias baptized him and exhorted him to become a witness to all men. When Paul recounted this testimony, he made sure to include that Ananias was a devout observer of the Torah, the law. Now consider that Paul made several statements near the end of the 30 years that the book of Acts covers, like this one. Hey, how long had it been? 30 years. 30 years after the resurrection. Our next slide is Paul's continued testimony. Acts 24, 14 says, However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Check out verse 18. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. Look at the bottom of the screen with me. Surely Paul's own words can be considered when shaping our view of his doctrine. Paul said that he agrees with the law, and he referred to himself as ceremonially clean. This testimony from the book of Acts should be considered when evaluating Paul's theology in order to ensure that we don't, as Peter says, distort Paul's writings or any other scripture. The fact is that the entire community of Jewish believers retains their Jewish identity and Torah observance throughout the record in Acts. The questions in Acts 15, the question in Acts 15 has nothing to do with whether or not a Jew should remain a Jew now that he has believed in Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. The question being considered is this. It's whether or not a believing Gentile must progress in his faith and proselytize into a Jewish identity to maintain his, i.e. the Gentiles' own salvation. (coughs) Acts 15 concerns Gentiles being accepted without them becoming members of the commonwealth of Israel. We should not have to do this, honestly. But because of the scriptural scriptural ignorance in our time, we're going to belabor this point with one more slide, and then we'll move on after. Let's do it. Uh, This slide is titled The Description of Jewish Believers at the End of Acts. So from Acts 21-20, you have Jewish believers zealous for the law. In Acts 21-24, living in obedience to the law. In Acts 22-12, a devout observer or observers of the law. In Acts 24-14, in agreement with the law. And in Acts 24-17 or 18, ceremonially clean. 
Then in Acts 25, verse 8, states, Then Paul made his defense, saying, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. A repetitious focus on this subject is meant to guard you from the errors prevalent within our time. When we read Acts 15, the question being considered is not regarding Jews leaving obedience to the Torah, that is the constitution of the nation of Israel, but rather about whether or not Gentiles can continue in salvation without taking on the sign and identity of Jews. Yeah. Acts 15 is about eliminating that diacrino between ethnic Jewish believers and Gentile believers from other nations. Remember, the Church of Jerusalem has already sent Barnabas to evaluate the authenticity of Gentile believers in Antioch. That's true. This happened in Acts 11.22. Barnabas verified the efficacy of their saving faith. Moreover, Barnabas and Saul brought financial aid to the Jerusalem church from their Gentile counterparts in Antioch during Acts 12. The question before the council is, can these Gentiles progress in their journey of salvation to the ultimate aim of salvation without becoming Jewish proselytes? So let's move on to the fourth party that we need to consider in preparation for the Acts 15 Council. His name is Yaakov, or James. There are many traditions and ideas that circulate around James that contribute to the ideas that people have. Many of them are Protestant reactions to the Catholic elevation of Peter. It seems that because Catholics want to exalt Peter to the position of a pope, that many Protestants want to elevate James to the position of the leader in Jerusalem to counteract the Catholic claim. As always, we will rely on the scriptural position, amen? Amen! Because neither the Catholics nor the Protestants are right. Amen. Look at this next slide. Yaakov, which is the best Hebrew that I have, Yaakov, the brother of Yeshua. Mark 3, picking up in 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. In Mark 3, 31, it begins with, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? So the Gospel of Mark makes it painfully obvious that the children of Joseph and Mary had difficulty understanding their older half-brother's role as Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. James was among the siblings that set out to seize Jesus because he thought Jesus was out of his mind. In some ways, this is worse than the position of a Gentile who had no exposure to the ministry of Christ. It is probable that reflections on these kinds of things served to create the humility in James that made him one of the several excellent leaders in the early community. So you can see Mark paints a very clear picture, and there are many such indications within the Gospels. But the Gospel of John puts the situation the most succinctly. So you'll see our next slide, Yaakov as an unbeliever. John 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. 
No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify what it does is evil. John just comes straight out and says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. It's very clear that James was an unbeliever during the ministry of his older half-brother. Now consider this. This fact is true all the way through the crucifixion of Jesus. Because John 19, 26-27 records John taking Mary into his home to care for her instead of entrusting her to James wow. or any of the other brothers. Man. So the Protestant Pope doesn't have a great start in the scripture. <laughs> Clearly the unbelief that characterized James is not the only thing that defined his life. Amen. Amen. Jesus appeared to many people during the 40 days between the resurrection and his ascension. This happened first for the women in the garden and then for the 12 foundational apostles. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people and apparently one of them was James. That must have been an extraordinary moment because James... Well, he walks faithfully in service of Messiah for the rest of his life after that moment. Here's a progression of the life of James on a slide. We titled it James' Transition to Faith and Leadership. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 7 indicates that James received an appearance of his risen brother. Acts 1, 13 through 14, the next passage sequentially, would mean that James continued with the apostles in prayer prior to Pentecost. In Galatians 1.19, James is referred to as an apostle, although James is not one of the twelve original apostles. Mm. In Acts 15.13, James will lend his opinion to the discussion in support of the testimonies and cite scriptural confirmation. In Acts 21.18, James is again seen with the elders receiving Paul on a return from a missionary journey. So tonight as we read through the chapter, it's important that you keep the background of these four main parties in mind. That's why we went through the introduction. This will help you avoid reading things into the text that are not there. And it will also help you understand how the council parties interacted with each other in coming to one of the most important decisions in history. This chapter forms the basis for your inclusion into the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. It also happens to have been the basis for most of our teachings on the way that plural unity in the Bible works that we call team unity meetings. It's time for us to pray. And I'm going to call on Sidney Piro to stand and pray with authority.
Amen. So the reading of our text tonight falls to the esteemed pastoress Cassidy Piro. So Cassidy, we're going to read verse 1 through verse 35. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Unless you were circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you could not be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through, through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit 
and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went, went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we have quite a few things to get into tonight. Are you guys with us? Yes. Yeah. They look get sleepy, into... Justin. Oh, no. no. We have ah. Look, this is going to be an exciting chapter. This chapter Amen. is going to be the basis of why we are here tonight studying the Bible. Amen. So let's get into verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So the initial reading of this text lends to the idea that circumcision is the only question in view. Mm -hmm. However... That is not the case. What? Circumcision is the sign of the larger covenant that defines the nation of Israel. What these teachers are asserting goes way beyond a one-time act of circumcision. Come on, let's go. This language is shorthand for becoming full-blown proselytes and taking on a Jewish identity. The clear implication is that the unauthorized teachers do not believe that the Gentile converts can continue in the journey of salvation without becoming proselytes that are both circumcised and who identify with Adonai through the kind of Torah observance that identifies the nation of Israel as a distinct people group within the nations of the world. This assertion is controverted by the events of Acts 10, where Adonai himself chose to fill Gentiles with the Holy Spirit and enable them to speak in other tongues without becoming members wow. of the commonwealth of Israel. Wow. Wow. Moreover, the law itself does not require men of other nations what? other than Israel wow. to practice every detail of the Torah that was meant to make Israel distinct from the nations. Come on now. So consider this passage that relates to dietary laws given to Israel Alone, Ooh, You guys are going to want to pay attention to this slide. It's entitled, Jews and Gentiles Relate to the Torah Differently. Deuteronomy 14.21 says, You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. For a Jew, they should not eat anything that's died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns. That he may eat it. Wow. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. Mm. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Mm. Notice here that Adonai does not want an Israeli to eat something that died naturally. There may be many motivations for this, including sanitary and health benefits, but... That argument completely misses the point. It does what, Nick? It completely misses the point. Y'all remember that the next time you make that argument to my face. 
<laughs> if this Torah command was based on health benefits, then surely Adonai would not have instructed his people to sell it to a foreigner that he may eat it. The goal of the diet—that's a great point. It's a good point. As the goal of the dietary commands may include health benefits, but they are primarily for distinctiveness. Someone say distinctiveness. They are primarily for distinctiveness among the nations of the world. So clearly, a Jew may not eat this kind of animal, but a man of any other nation may eat this kind of animal according to the Torah. Some of us find that to be good news. <laughs> Amen, I'm excited about it. This is one of many examples within the Torah itself that shows a different relationship to the Torah based on Jewish ethnicity or Gentile ethnicity. Any other conclusion would be tantamount to asserting that Adonai encouraged Gentiles to sin by eating this kind of food. And of course, that's just not true. Rather than go through the numerous instances where the law sets forth two different practices for a Jew and for a Gentile, in which both men are avoiding sin by doing completely different things, let us just point out that the reason for many of these commands was purely to make Israel different, to make them distinct, and to make Israel a holy people unto the Lord. By the way, even among the Israelites, even among the Israelites, there are different standards in marriage what? for a priest and any other Israelite. What? Yeah, that's right. The same is true for a high priest and an ordinary priest. Come on. You guys see Leviticus 21 for those. In every case, the practice advocated is wholesome for both parties. And nevertheless, it's different in order to make a distinction. Somebody say wholesome. Wholesome. But different. But different. You've just grown up 10 years in your faith. Hey. Praise God. Hundreds of examples could be quoted that relate to property and clothing alone. But let's just quote Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 through 18. Amen. Let's do it. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty yeah. and the awesome God. Yeah! Who is not partial and takes no bribe. Yeah. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's right. Giving him food and clothing. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I love the foreigner and gives him food. Yeah. Even if that food is different than what an, what an Israeli is required to have. Wow. I don't know. I love Gentiles and gives them clothing. <coughs> even if the clothing is different. Than one that needs Israeli is required to have. Like this shirt right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Many of you are wearing a blend of fabrics. Yeah. That is Gentile clothing. Yeah. Jews cannot do that. But be thankful God clothed you. This would be an awkward meeting if he didn't. <laughs> so, these are matters of distinction between the identity of Israel and the identity of other nations that the Torah acknowledges. The sad thing about Acts 15 1 is that the men were not authorized to introduce this controversy. More than that, they made it a matter of salvation for the Gentiles. Uh -oh. The wisdom of the leadership within Jerusalem is going to shine brightly in the coming verses, and we 
are still being benefited by it. Hallelujah. Take verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas in sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed. appointed. Notice that Jerusalem is still the center of foundational apostolic authority to decide controversial matters. The reason that Paul and Barnabas were in sharp dispute with the purveyors of this misapplication of the law was that the assertion that they're making runs counter to the things Paul and Barnabas had personally experienced as well as their understanding of the word. Paul and Barnabas and other believers were commissioned by the community at Antioch to take this issue to Jerusalem for resolution before a plurality of leaders made up of apostles and elders. What we are seeing is the furthest thing from a single leader model. Do you guys see that? Yeah. Yes. Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with other believers to go to Jerusalem. This begs the question, <coughs> who appointed them? Who? Who? The answer is that the body of Christ in Antioch appointed them. Paul was not in charge in Antioch, and neither was Barnabas. They were leaders within a community, and the community appointed them, along with other brothers, to go and represent the interest of the community to Jerusalem. That's incredible. It should also be pointed out that the delegation from Antioch was not sent to a single leader in Jerusalem. Are you seeing the plurality of yeah. these things? The, dele- the delegation was sent to see the uh, sent to see the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem community. At this point, we might need to ask why anyone reading this text would accept church models that are based around yeah. singular leaders functioning like dictators. That's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. I was just recently told in another country, hey, it's worked for hundreds of years. Has it? No. <laughs> no. Let's get verse 3. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. So look, we're going to read a couple of passages to refresh our memory on who Paul and Barnabas are meeting with. Come on. Beginning with Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Paul and Barnabas stopped along the route from Antioch back to Jerusalem and met with the churches of Samaria that were the result of Philip, Peter, and John's efforts in Samaria after the death of Stephen. Luke records that those churches were glad to hear about the Gentiles being saved in Antioch, Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Yeah, let's look at the other stuff. This is Acts 11, 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message 
Jews. Some of them, however, <laughs> men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greekish people also, <laughs> telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. As Paul and Barnabas traveled back to Jerusalem, they also stopped in Phoenicia. Luke is still letting us know that the death of Stephen produced believing communities throughout Samaria and Phoenicia. Hallelujah! Those communities all heard about the salvation of the Gentiles in Antioch, Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. More importantly, they were very glad because of it. The reason we went into these stops in Samaria and Phoenicia is because Paul and Barnabas are sharing their testimonies in congregations that are predominantly mixed subgroupings of Jews that are now united under the banner of Jesus Christ. Amen. And they were very glad to hear about the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom of God on earth. Hallelujah. Let's pick up in verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So the reception of the Antioch delegation <laughs> in Jerusalem was warm. Yeah. They were welcomed. This is because the Jerusalem community was not aware of the controversy caused by unauthorized teachers that had gone out from them to trouble the Gentile converts in Antioch. They didn't even know about it yet. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas are recounting the events of Acts 13 and 14 to the church and, the, and to the apostles and the elders. Remember, the Jerusalem community was aware already of Gentile converts in Antioch prior to this moment. Mm. They had commissioned Barnabas to go to Antioch and evaluate the situation originally. Barnabas verified the genuine grace of God present at Antioch, and then, along with Saul, they brought financial aid back to the Jerusalem community wow. in Acts 12. Yep. That financial aid that came from the Gentiles. The new information that they are receiving is about the conversion of Gentiles in Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, as well as information about the controversy that unauthorized teachers had created. You ever feel like you're the last to know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah walk in the shoes of an apostle for a minute. <laughs> Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Okay. So during our introduction to the session tonight, we warned you guys not to view these men as enemies. Remember, they are hearing about these events for the first time. They are genuine believers that are hearing about a controversy, and they picked a side based on their own convictions. This was done in an open forum that was meant to discuss the different views present on the subject. There are many passages in the Torah that may have led them to express this view, but let's consider just one of them. Do y'all have any sympathy for these men yet? Yes. Absolutely. Shall we illustrate the number of times that you've expressed an opinion based on a scripture that turned out to be wrong? That's all you should have to do to have sympathy for these men. That's a lot. We're going to consider Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 10 together. It says, This is my covenant 
which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Wow. Ooh, that's strong language. Verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Specific. Ooh. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations. Wow. Whether born in your house... Yeah. Or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Mm. Both he was born in your house and he was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Mm. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Wow. He has broken my covenant. Wow. Did that get your attention? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can certainly understand reading that passage could lead you or any genuine believer to come to the conclusion that even a <coughs> Gentile must be circumcised sure. and must take on the sign of Jewish identity to continue in the faith. Yeah. The passage clearly says, whether born in your house or bought with money from a foreigner. The passage even goes on to say that any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Attempts to demonize the believing Pharisees in Jerusalem for expressing their opinion that Gentiles should be circumcised and take on the identity of Israel... Well, these are shallow. They also do not take into consideration the complexity of this situation that we're reading about. Yeah, right. So then, get out your knives, yeah. and let's all do this thing together, right? No. Wrong! No. Wrong! The Torah does teach that those who become part of Abraham's physical household, which would become the nation and people group of Israel, must be circumcised. That's true. This was true regardless of how they came to be in the nation and people group. However, the promise to Abraham was always that the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Amen. So let's read this promise. Genesis 12, starting in verse 2. I will make you into I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So Abraham would be made into a great nation. This refers to Israel, and this is the physical household and people group of Abraham to whom the circumcision was eventually given as a sign and identifier of the nation. Who is the great nation? Israel. And that is Abraham's physical household that received the physical identifier. Let's look at what the promise goes on to say. Verse 3. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you... I will curse, Come on. and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise is that all peoples, even those outside of the great nation, would be blessed by Abram. The great nation is the physical household and the people group that would come to bear the physical identifier of circumcision. The phrase, all peoples on earth, is literally the families of the earth. Meaning, 
those who are outside the physical household of Abram. Those families of the earth were not given the sign or physical identifier of Abraham, and they are not the great nation. They remain distinct as Japhethites or Hamites, right. even while they are blessed to be in the tent of Shem's God. Do you understand the distinction? Those that are born in Abraham's household or enter Abraham's household that is the great nation of God must bear the physical identifier regardless of how they came to be there. But if that were required of all the families of the nations of the earth, there would be no other nations of the earth. All would be Israel. So the requirement in sign that identifies the great nation for the physical household of Abraham is circumcision. But God had a plan to bless those outside that family, and it did not include the physical identifier of circumcision. And we could go on with other various illustrations, but the truth is that the foundational apostles and the elders, together with the delegation of Antioch, do a better job than we would parsing the scriptures. Besides, the book of, books of Romans and Galatians deal heavily with this topic, but that is the subject of future teachings. The only reason that we brought this up was to familiarize you with the complexity of the debate and to give you an appreciation for the views of the believing Pharisees. Can you appreciate how they got there? Yes. yes. Are you still struggling to figure out how their position is not true? Well, we have the rest of the chapter. <laughs> Let's move to verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So while you're contemplating the complexity of this, you've been guilty of oversimplifying the discussion. They consider that the apostles, the elders involved in this discussion, felt that the issue at hand was so serious that they had to take time to consider the question. That's a good one. Not an immediate response, yeah. to consider the question. Right. In other words, the answer was not immediately straightforward or patently obvious due to multiple passage on the subject. So what we want to do is think through the process that we're observing together. The observable process of Acts 15. By the way, if you'd like to accomplish anything in ministry, I suggest you pay attention to this progress. A controversial issue arose in Antioch. Yeah. The community there appointed a plurality of men to represent their concerns. Then the delegation was sent to Jerusalem. That seems like a good idea. Where the whole community in Jerusalem was present. The church, the apostles, the elders, and they all listened to the reports. Suggestions were received from members of the general church body. Uh-oh. And then... The elders and apostles met together to consider this question. You've already read the chapter and you know how well this process works out. So let's look at a few passages from the law, the prophets, and the writings that encourage us to follow this kind of methodology in any kind of decision that we are making. We got any toxically independent people out there tonight? Any that are fighting to kill that kind of squealer within your flesh? Well, let's listen to Deuteronomy 17, verse 9 together. Let's do it. And you shall come to the Levitical priests, plural, and to the judge who is in office in those days. And you shall consult them, plural, and 
They shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do what according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you. You shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict they declare to you either to the right hand or the left. It could not be said enough that the law does not encourage single leader models. Ooh, that's good. In this passage, the plural Levitical priest and judge are referred to as they or them no less than seven times. We will all do well to implement this kind of problem solving when disputes arise within the one association. Amen. The leadership in Antioch and in Jerusalem are following the ideals laid out in the law of God to the letter. So now that you've heard what the law says about plurality of leadership, listen to what the prophets say. Isaiah 126. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The prophet Isaiah foresaw a day when judges were again plural and working in conjunction with counselors, like they did in the Torah, to form Jerusalem into a city of righteousness and faithfulness. Our hope is to operate the communities of the One Association churches in exactly the same manner as the Bible describes. If the church at Antioch and the church at Jerusalem operated in this manner, then what would give any of us the right to deviate from this pattern? It's a good point. The unified commitment of the churches to operate in this manner is why they can rightly be referred to in the book of Acts as one singular church. Come on. Let's let's visit the writings together now. Psalm 119, verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. It's extremely important for all of us to grasp that these decisions were not made merely by large groups of men. They did involve a plurality of men, and praise God for that. But ultimately, it was not the testimony, but the testimonies of the scriptures that became the deciding factor for these men. Amen. With with that in mind, let's move on to verse 7, Lintone. Are y'all awake? Are y'all following us? Yes. Yes. After much discussion. I mean, this was easy. We had the AI write it for us. (laughs) (laughs) After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Hmm. So as we get into Peter's contribution to this discussion... Please remember that Acts 11 recorded both the experience of the Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit and the testimony that Peter remembered the words of Jesus from Acts 1, 5 through 8. That is, 
Peter saw the Gentiles get filled with the Holy Spirit, and he remembered the words of Jesus that said, For John baptized in water, but in a few days he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So the testimony that Peter is now given has already been established by the Spirit, literally filling the Gentiles, and the Word, literally Jesus speaking those words. Now, let's draw your attention to a translational issue that has bearing on the continuity of this chapter and the testimonies of Peter and James. So check out this slide, the NET textual note. Or long ago, an idiom, literally from ancient days. Say ancient days. Ancient days. So according to this Lunita reference, 67.26, this reference to Peter having been chosen by God sometime before to bring the gospel to the Gentiles can hardly be regarded as a reference to ancient times. Though some persons... Like us! <laughs> some persons understand this to mean that God's decision was made at the beginning of time. The usage of this Greek phrase is probably designed to emphasize the established nature of God's decision for Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles, beginning with the centurion Cornelius. The fact that this was relatively early in the development of the church may also serve to explain the use of the idiom. We agree with the reading of the verse as, Brothers, you know that from ancient days God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Similar Greek phrases actually appear three times in this chapter, and unfortunately they are translated differently in every case. The reason that we are drawing your attention to this fact is that Peter mentions this once. It is used in conclusion of a quotation from Amos once. And James verbalizes the same thing once in reference to Moses. The repeated use of these phrases are probably to emphasize that the things being done here have been intended by Adonai since the beginning. In other words, the phrases are used repetitiously repetitiously to underscore the sovereignty of God in the situation. This is true even if the intended meaning is slightly different in each occurrence. The overall concept is that from ancient days, say ancient days, ancient days, Adonai intended that Gentiles would hear the gospel through Israel or maybe even Peter as an Israeli apostle to be more specific. And we'll point them out as we go, but for now, let's keep reading and move to verse 8. God who knows the heart shows that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why did you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No! No! We believe in is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Come on. Look, we just want to readily admit that we love Peter's boldness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, in all fairness, he had a right to be this bold. Sure he did. Peter had already been corrected by a voice from heaven in Acts 10, removing his distinction or diacrino. Peter had already witnessed the Gentiles being filled with the Spirit and speaking in other tongues spontaneously. More importantly to the discussion, Peter has already given this testimony to his brothers in Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Uh -oh. He now views the community as testing God 
by considering that Gentiles would need to take on the identity of Israel through circumcision to arrive at ultimate salvation. Hey, before you read that next line, Judah, do you really think it's testing God if you have to come across the same issue multiple times in one congregation? Yes. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Oh, yeah. wow. We probably ought not review our messages through the years then. <laughs> Peter took this personally. He said, no, you're testing God. Why? Because the issue had already been settled and yet kept resurfacing. Wow, I can think of a handful of subjects in this room that continually resurface every few years. That's testing God. Wow. Probably best that we visit Peter's testimony in Acts 11. Oh, okay. Acts 11, 16. <laughs> and I remembered the word of the Lord. Amen. Woo! Amen. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they shut up. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter has already testified that he would be standing in God's way if he had an objection to what Adonai had miraculously done in the lives of Gentiles. Moreover, the community agreed with him at that time and glorified God for what happened. In Peter's view, what is happening in raising this question again, albeit in a slightly different form, constitutes testing God. The reason that we say that the Jerusalem Council is dealing with a slightly different issue is that repentance leads to life. Salvation is actually a journey in the Bible that has a starting place, an extended walking time, and an ultimate place of completion. The objection of the unauthorized teachers is that the Gentile community will not be able to continue in the pathway of salvation to its ultimate end unless they progress to the point of circumcision. Mm. This is what they meant by unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. See, you need to get out of your mind that salvation is a transaction. They're not saying that a Gentile cannot begin the journey of salvation without being circumcised. Their claim is that he cannot finish the journey of salvation without being circumcised. And this is why Peter makes the statement, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. See, neither party would be saved because of an outward identifier, but only in the grace or empowerment of the Spirit. So this brings up at least two issues. The first is that the seal of the Holy Spirit supersedes a mere mark in a man's privy member, especially if the man is not a member of the Commonwealth of Israel 
and was never required to bear the mark of circumcision on his privy member. The second is that Peter seems to be pointing to a latent misuse of the law that is still a temptation for the people. Jews were never saved by obedience to the law. Jews were never saved by obedience to the law. They waited for salvation, and they lived obediently to the law as an expression of their faith. When Peter refers to a yoke that they had been unable to bear, he seems to mean an inappropriate reliance on the law for salvation, which was never God's intention in giving the law. Ooh, do you guys want to see that in the Word together? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We've got three scriptures for you from Psalm 119. The first of those three is going to come from verse 81. Listen to this in the NIV. My soul faints with longing for your salvation. That's a good thing. Yeah. Praise God for that. But I have put my hope in your Word. Amen. The hope of Israel has always been in the mercy of Adonai. And the only right way to live is by obeying the word and maintaining the hope that is laid out in the word. Let's go to our next one. Next one from verse 165. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and... 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 I follow your commands. Notice how the word continually distinguishes between salvation and the commands. Salvation is something that only Adonai can grant, but the commands are the right way to live as we wait on salvation. And we're going to read Psalm 119, 173, and that's where we'll begin. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and And your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. Sustain. That's amazing. So again, in these verses, salvation is earnestly longed for, but the law is the delight of the believer. The law even sustains the believer by teaching him right actions as he waits for the final salvation of Adonai. Listen, an Israelite was not saved by circumcision at any point in history, but for an Israelite, it is the sign of the covenant that has promised to save the nation. The issue with requiring this of a Gentile is that Israel was never told to circumcise the nations of the world. Instead, they would become a blessing to the nations of the world. Come on. Amen. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and the wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Guys, have you considered what is going on here? Barnabas and Paul are now recounting the events that Luke recorded in Acts 13 and 14, and possibly in even more vivid detail. Come on. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been to be gathered together, hearing Paul and Barnabas firsthand recount Everything that happened in Acts 13 and 14. Oh, come on. Hallelujah! I mean, stuff like Elimus the sorcerer Ooh. becoming blind. Wow. And then subsequently a Roman proconsul believing the good news. Oh, the last time somebody like this 
believed the good news was Peter speaking to Cornelius. Yeah. Wow. Roman officials and centurions do not tend to follow Jesus. That's true. The news of the healing of a man born lame. Wow. wow. Once again, we've not seen this since Peter and John had right. done it, and before that was Jesus himself. Yeah. Barnabas being mistaken for Zeus. Wow. Come Look, on. Can you imagine sitting around a coffee table hearing this story drawn out? Yeah. I mean, they're telling their story about their ministry events, and, you know, Bosch, Bosch was Zeus, man, yeah. in their eyes. They could see his beard from a distance. <laughs> and then the younger man speaking next to him was mistaken for Hermes. Oh Judah prepared for this tonight by tearing his shirt in advance of the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> now, my favorite part, I mean... If Bosch and I are retelling this story, and you really just got to engage with it, a part of it is that Paul was stoned, yeah. Yeah. presumed dead, yeah. and then in one form or another raised by the disciples, oh, yeah. Yeah. who were probably Gentiles. Yeah. And then at some point in that retelling, somebody has to ask where Barnabas was during this whole event. <laughs> it was coffee. <laughs> Even more astonishing, in the Gentile world, they told testimonies of the planting of not one, not two, not three, but four churches, yeah. wow. and the appointing of elders for each one of them. That's amazing. Better than our last missionary trip. <laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like? to be in that room. Come on. Man. What anticipation must you have had as you're hearing this story? Yeah. Seeing the supernatural way that God is breaking out in a way that has never happened before. Ooh, come on. While you're thinking about the illusion of the first time and that anticipation, let's read the next verse, Lincoln. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Did y'all catch that? When they finished, when Paul and Barnabas finished, James spoke up and said, Brothers, listen to me! Simon has described. James doesn't even acknowledge that Barnabas and Paul said any of those things. He jumped straight to what Simon had said before they started speaking, which might have been two hours earlier. <laughs> there are two major reasons for this. First, and this first one is really the minor one, is that it is the work of Barnabas and Paul that is the subject of scrutiny that everyone is discussing. Secondly, this discussion was probably completely unnecessary after the effectiveness of Peter's statements and the weight of his experiences. Wow. They, they did, however, wait for more than one witness. Yeah. Peter has already demonstrated the way that he had been corrected and the result of the correction. Mm -hmm. Peter has already faithfully brought this issue before the community for the second time. This undoubtedly registered deeply with every person involved in the decision. Peter was a believer a long time before James was. I imagine James ran straight to Peter when he saw his risen older half-brother. Okay? You have to think about their relationships in the room. It's why we did the introduction that way. On a practical note, 
It would seem that the testimony that includes correction along with personal repentance and then moves on to the deeds as well as teachings of Jesus is always the most powerful kind of testimony. Don't get us wrong. What Barnabas and Paul had to say was important. But it's pretty clear from James' response that his mind was still on what Peter had already said. Moreover, James did not just think about what Peter said and become persuaded because Peter's magnificent. James thoughtfully considered the word. Remember, James is not sitting with the latest edition of Logos Bible software. He has no Wi-Fi connection. He's made a lifetime practice of searching the scripture and meditating on the word by speaking it out loud. Joshua 1.8 says for it to never leave your mouth. Not just read it, not just hear it, actually speak it aloud. And James practiced that. This practice meant that the word had become his life. Just like Deuteronomy 30.16 says. The word was hidden deep within the recesses of James' heart. Just like Psalm 119 verse 11 says. So he did not have to Google Amos 9. The passage that James pulls out of those deep recesses, well, it reveals an intricate knowledge of the overall scope of the biblical patterns in prophecy. In fact, it's so deep that it would take several sessions to adequately explain to you how profound what James' quote is. We don't have several sessions. But let's look at James' quote from the book of Amos together now. Let's do it. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been sp- that have been known for ages. So James has just quoted Amos 9, 11 through 12, and then he added a summary comment. The overview of what his quotation meant is this. In the end times, James seems to be saying God's people will consist of two concentric groups. The first one, at the core, will be a restored Israel, i.e. David's rebuilt tent. And the second, gathered around them, will be a group of Gentiles, i.e. the remnant of men, who will share in the Messianic blessings, but who will continue as Gentiles without necessarily becoming Jewish proselytes. Ooh, that's deep. Now that's impressive. Yeah, it is. But would you have understood his quotation and its application without the aid of this commentary? No, no, no. Answer the question. You see, James is speaking in the manner of a first century rabbi. His quotation was not meant to be limited to the portion of Amos that he verbalized alone. In quoting Amos 9, 11 through 12, James is implying the greater context of Amos chapters 8 and 9. And remember, he is doing this from memory. So let's look at a few indicators that are in Amos 8 and 9 that helped James to arrive at this conclusion. You want to look at them? Yes. Look at it! (laughs) So this slide represents our first indicator. Remember, James quoted from Amos 9, 11 through 12. But here in this slide, we're going to back all the way 
into Amos 8, starting in verse 9. Read this together with us. It's entitled, Darkened Sun and Mourning for a Sun. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Ooh, that should remind you of things. And the end of it, like a bitter day. So, what did James and the early believing community seen that triggered James to begin meditating on this section of Amos? Let's read a passage from the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 23, verse 44. And it was now about the sixth hour. I think that's noon. Yeah. About the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. <coughs> And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So at the crucifixion, the sun went down at noon and the land was darkened during broad daylight. The sun's light failed just as Amos had said. It was during the Passover feast, which should have been a time of rejoicing, but for many, it was turned into mourning, just as Amos said. Luke records the crowds returning to their homes, beating their breasts, which is an expression of regret and mourning, just as Amos said. Surely you can see how this is equated with mourning for an only son. Yeah. Can't you? Yeah. Yeah. Even more amazingly, a Gentile centurion praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Are you guys beginning to see why this section of Amos might have been on the mind and heart of James at this point. Yeah. Really? Remember, he was there. He watched these things. Let's continue looking at the greater context of Amos 8 and 9 with our next slide, titled Spiritual Famine. From Amos 8 11, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There were years of revival atmosphere within Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts. We read about them. But as the church grew and the lines were drawn and the sword cut through more and more sharply between those in the way and those outside the way, this atmosphere actually faded. Persecution increased and so did the hardness of their hearts in the unbelieving population of Israel. The nation was being plunged into a famine of hearing from the Lord. The believing community was blessed with prophets and signs and wonders, but the members of the unbelieving nation were staggering 
because of the lack of being able to hear the words of the Lord. James is seeing this condition of his nation and understanding that it fits the pattern being described in Amos. Remember, we're about 20 years after Pentecost. We're currently around 8050, and only 20 years from the destruction of the temple in 8070. James is discerning his times from the book of Amos, and the next verses make it very clear. Right, let's look at another one. The National Civ, Amos 9, picking up an 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say... Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. So James has personally watched the sun go down during the crucifixion. He has been part of the revival that Jerusalem experienced, but also has watched the spiritual famine come upon the majority of the unbelieving nation as they harden their hearts uh, to the gospel. Now he has just heard Barnabas and Paul recount the opposition that they have received from Jewish men among the nations in every foreign city that they went to. Remember, Paul and Barnabas likely shared this event from the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidian, Acts 13, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. James understood that his nation and his people were being sifted by Adonai among the nations. The sword of the word was cutting deeply into the family of Israel to divide the unbelieving sinner from the believing house of Jacob. The verses that we have covered all come immediately before James' quotation of Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. They set the stage for how James interprets his times. Y'all see how it's a run-up to what James quoted? Can you see the pattern in it? He did that from memory. Yeah. So with that being said, let's read from the LXX because it matches the Greek of the Newer Testament more closely. Let's do it. So you can see on your slide James' passage from Amos, the LXX version, (laughs) beginning in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and will rebuild the ruins of it and will set up the parts thereof that have been broken down, and will build it up as in the ancient days, that the remnant of men and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called may earnestly seek me, save the Lord who does all these things. Look, in days of sifting, something would happen. Something would begin to happen as Israel itself was sifted. David's tabernacle would be restored. They'd be restored to the state of the kingdom at that time, what it was like in the Davidic kingdom. And Gentiles would call upon the name of the Lord. Look, the layers of understanding that James displays is staggering. Again, he's doing this from memory. Remember that during most of David's life, he was anointed as king, but being persecuted by a faithless countryman named Saul. 
During those times, David was received among the Gentiles, and many of those Gentiles helped him establish his kingship. This is true of many of the mighty fighting men of David, but let's focus on a singular Gentile who helped David and was specifically in charge of one-third of all of Israel's armies. Ooh. Are you all following us so far? Yeah. Because yeah. you'll be hard-pressed to find a better explanation of what David's fallen tabernacle is. Yeah. 2 Samuel 15, 19. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner. Mm. And also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers. Take your brothers with you, your other countrymen. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king. As the Lord, as Jehovah... As Yahweh lives, yeah. and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all of his men, all the countrymen, and all the little ones who were with him. You guys know that Ittai was from Gath, which is the same town that Goliath had been from. But he was a Gentile that never proselytized, and yet was loyal to both Yahweh and the kingship of David to the point of his own life or death. Come on. Moreover, Ittai became the commander of one-third of the armies of Israel in 2 Samuel 18. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of Gentiles like Ittai that were part of the kingdom during the time of David. They were instrumental in his kingship. The point is that David rose to power during an extended time of national sifting. Yep. Yeah. And many Gentiles supported David's kingship and also shared in the blessing of Israel while they remained Gentiles who loved Yahweh. Amos points to a time when this situation would exist again. Of course, this time, it is the son of David, Jesus Christ, Amen. that is king. Yeah. James has come to the understanding that Gentiles who call on the name of the Lord will assist in the expanding kingship of Messiah in Israel. Moreover, they will share in the blessings of Israel without becoming Jewish in their national identity. Man, that's so good. Also consider David's song or prayer during the time that the tent or tabernacle of David was placed on Zion. This is important because it expresses the heart of David and the condition during the time of David's tabernacle. Come on, this is going to be exciting, right, Rob? Yeah. You can't get this in any commentary, we promise. This is David's tabernacle, his song and prayer. These are excerpts from 1 Chronicles 16, 8-36. Verse 8. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. 
make known among the nations what he has done. Verse 24, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Verse 31, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Hallelujah. We hope you can see the wisdom of James. He was a man that understood the prophetic pattern laid out in the rise of the Davidic king and who had deep insight into the prophecies of Amos. James listened to Peter and then Barnabas and Paul. He felt inspired to quote a passage from Amos whose context fit the circumstances of the church that the church was living through perfectly. Before we move on to verse 19, though, we want to let you know that there is a controversy that surrounds verse 18. Let's look at the context of that verse again. Oh, yeah. We got a a slide for you, a visual right here so that you can get this context. The title of the slide is Acts 15, 15 through 18. Here's a hint for you. James, Amos, James. All right. Let's look at the left side of the screen together. Verse 15 says the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. As you can see from our red arrow and first box, that is clearly James speaking there. Then in verse 16, it begins a quote from Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. You guys heard that from Amos chapter 9, 11 through 12. Now, look at verse 18 of Acts 15. That have been known for ages. Well, that little phrase right there doesn't match the manuscripts that we have of Amos. So we have a question at the bottom of the screen. A question arises. Who should we attribute verse 18 to? Is it James? Or is it Amos? Good question. Did you know that the typesetting in your Bible was not actually inspired? Did you know that? Oh. Okay. Okay. What do you do now? Okay. So earlier in our evening, we told you that similar Greek phrases actually appear three times in this chapter. And unfortunately for us, well, they're translated different every single time. We mentioned that the reason that we were drawing your attention to that fact is that Peter mentions this once. It is used in conclusion to a quotation from Amos once. And James verbalizes the same thing once in reference to Moses. So this is actually our second occurrence of the similar Greek phrase that most literally means have been known from ancient days. The repeated use of these phrases emphasizes that the things being discerned within this chapter, guys, they've actually been known and intended by Adonai since the very beginning. In other words, the phrases are used repetitiously. And these phrases help to underscore the sovereignty of God in this situation with the Gentiles. This is true even if the intended meaning is slightly different in each occurrence. 
the overall concept is that from ancient days, Adonai intended that Gentiles would hear the gospel through Israel. And James is pointing out that Amos foresaw these days that the community was experiencing right here in Acts 15. It's kind of nice to know that when a controversy or a problem arises, it didn't surprise God. Yeah. <laughs> well, this fact is obscured because most of our translations try to attribute verse 18 to one of the prophets. So true. But the more likely scenario is that verse 18 is James' own comment on the quote from Amos. You may think that we're making this up, but so that you don't have those thoughts, let's look at a slide. This is coming from a textual critic. Verse 18. Is it James or Amos? Since the quotation from the Septuagint text of Amos 9.12 ends with that Greek word, it is not clear whether the concluding words in Greek are intended to be part of the quotation, as in most translations. Or, 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 whether they are meant to be a comment by James following the quotation. Amen. Because some copies understood that Greek word to be a comment by James, they made various attempts to reword the phrase, rounding it out as an independent sentence, such as, known to the Lord for ages is his word. That's in the NIV footnote. And known to God from old are all his words, as in the NRSV footnote. So, again, our only point in bringing the fact that Peter mentions that Adonai made this choice from ancient times, and now James is making the point that these things have been known since ancient times as yeah. well. The, the point is that the church is not really faced with a decision to make here. Do you, do you realize that? Yeah. They don't really have a decision to make. The church is faced with the acceptance right. of the decision yeah. that Adonai had already made from ancient times. Yeah. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Amen. All right, so take a look at this next slide. Is this James' judgment or his opinion? So Acts 15, 19 in the CJB reads, Therefore, my opinion is that we should not put obstacles in the way of the Goyim who are turning to God. How about the Amplified? Therefore, it is my opinion that we should not put obstacles in the way and annoy and disturb those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And in the net. Therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So draw your attention to the right side of this slide in that gray text box on the NET note. Or, I have decided, I think, the verb crino has a far broader range of meaning than the often used English verb judge. Crino places this use uh, in Acts 15.9 in the category judge, think, consider, look upon, followed by double accusative of object and predicate. However, many modern translations give the impression that a binding decision is being handed down by James. Do you catch the problem with that? Yes. yes. By saying judge, our ears hear something that is not intended in the Greek. Yeah, let's unpack that. 
So technically, there's nothing wrong with the translation, it is my judgment. Because James is offering his judgment, thoughts, opinions, or conclusions. The problem arises because we impose our Western view of leadership upon this text. In our culture, we usually have a president, chief executive officer, or some other form of single leader that is the final authority on every matter. These are echoes of the society and that we have all grown up in. This is our culture. Even in cases where a team is assigned to solve a task, we still look to the one person who has the ultimate authority. (laughs) And for us, it is almost always a singular individual. So when generations of Westerners hear the phrase, it is my judgment, therefore, they assume that James is the one in charge. This assumption is demonstrably false. Moreover, it ignores the centuries of plural leadership in Israel that defined the way that the early church operated. Now, for an in-depth teaching on that subject, refer to your notes and recordings from Ministry Training 2, the class on teams of 2 and 3. Well, since Pastor Peyton mentioned that, there are many things that are clearly outlined in Ministry Training 2, as well as a book called Law Dog that you can gain access to just by reaching out. But as we move forward, we're going to lightly touch on the subject of Shemiha. You see our next slide. Some of you will be familiar with it. No singular man possessed authority within himself apart from other men. Authority was seen and recognized when two or three men that had already been ordained recognized the authority of another man. This concept was fully endorsed by Jesus in Matthew 18. So here is a commentary on the practice from the Jewish New Testament commentary by David Stern. Rather, Yeshua is speaking to those who have authority to regulate Messianic communal life. This is Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Commissions them to establish new covenant halakha, that is, to make authoritative decisions where there is a question about how Messianic life ought to be lived. In verse 19, Yeshua is teaching that when an issue is brought formally to a panel of two or three Messianic community leaders and they, they, they render a halak decision here on earth. Yeah. They can be assured that the authority of God in heaven stands behind them. This is exactly what is going on in Acts 15. A plurality of leaders were chosen from Antioch to represent the concerns of the community to the believers in Jerusalem. That delegation was met with the entire believing community within Jerusalem. After hearing the concerns and reports, the apostles and elders met to consider the question. During that meeting, Peter offered his opinion as one of the Messianic leaders. Barnabas and Paul, they offered their opinion as two more of the Messianic leaders. Finally, James offered his opinion as the fourth witness among the Messianic leaders. So you're going to see in verse 22, it was the apostles, the elders, with the whole church that decided on the final answer. This is because they saw the unity of opinion with the men who were considered to have shmiha, or authority. And as a body, they knew that they had arrived at God's will on earth. This is the manner in which the most pivotal decision in the New Testament era was made. The decision was made by a plurality of leaders who reached a unified decision, and that the larger community both accepted 
and then went on to endorse. Saints, this is the model that the early church left for us. And it is time to reject the deviations from this model that are so prevalent in our time. Somebody say amen. 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 Let's consider one more slide on this topic so that it is uh, firmly cemented in your understanding. <laughs> this is a shot from the good old PC study Bible. There are 12 matches in 12 verses for the word leaders in the Newer Testament. You know what there are none of? Matches for the word leader. The concept of singular leadership is absent from the Newer Testament altogether. Now this is also true of the Older Testament. But that would take a four-hour class for me to explain it to you. And we have them recorded. We did. Yep. Notice the five red arrows on the slide. Each of those references concern the plural leadership of the believing community within the first century. Many churches in our time have come to recognize this, and so they've instituted multiple pastors. However, this alone does not come close to fitting the biblical pattern. No, no. Let's be honest. It does little good to have several leaders if a hierarchy still exists within the team. That's true. These kinds of attempts are really still singular dictator models that have been cleverly disguised as plural leadership. For the biblical model to be truly implemented, every man on the team must have an equal value and an equal voice. Come on. The decisions rendered must come from the unity that Adonai brings in the absence of manipulation and hierarchy. Simply put, a team of pastors that involves subordinates is not actually a team. And it does not fit the biblical pattern that we've seen displayed in our text tonight. So we're going to need to keep going in the text, but let's fast forward slightly to observe the whole process in advance of verse 22. We've seen the orthodoxy their belief in doctrine. Now we're going to look at their orthopraxy, how they walked this out in Acts 15. The observable process of Acts 15 is as follows. A controversial issue <laughs> arose in Antioch. The community there appointed a plurality of men to represent their concerns. The delegation was sent to Jerusalem. The whole community in Jerusalem, meaning the church, the apostles, and the elders listened to the reports. Suggestions were then received from members of the church body. The apostles and elders then met to consider the question. Yet Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James all issued their opinions based on their experiences and the word of God. When the leaders were in unity, then the larger community was addressed. Action was taken with the apostles and elders, with the whole church acting in unity, and they sent a plurality of men to carry it out. You don't see singularity one time in that observable process. Let's move on to verse 20. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. All right. So this is our third occurrence of the Greek phrase that essentially means from ancient days. You saw that in verse 21, from the earliest times. Again, the repetition of this kind of phrase is an indicator that the community was not so much 
making a decision as so much they were agreeing with what Adonai had already decided all the way from ancient days. The point in these verses is that Moses had already given the world the Tanakh, and it has been preached and read in every city weekly. The community decided to simply highlight issues that would promote unity between believing Jews and believing Gentiles, rather than issue a comprehensive dogma on every subject that might pertain to both parties. Since the instruction was being written to believing Gentiles, the emphasis was placed on things found within Gentile society that would represent a significant hindrance to the believing Jews who were in fellowship with them. The Gentiles were already aware of these issues because, after all, Moses has been preached in every city from the ancient days. But the Jerusalem community is going to reinforce that believe is going to reinforce that believing Gentiles would do well to avoid these areas that represented a substantial obstacle to their acceptance by the believing Jewish community. Y'all get the flavor of what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. Man, we can't emphasize enough how diligent the early church was to make sure that they displayed unity within a plurality of leaders. The entire Jerusalem church decided to send the delegation from Antioch back with a report, but also accompanied by two additional leaders from Jerusalem. This is because they took Deuteronomy seriously. Deuteronomy 19.15 states, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, it could be argued that this command is only in reference to legal proceedings that involve capital punishment. However, that is clearly not how the apostles interpreted the command. Come on. You might want to consider 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, which says, This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Clearly, the early believing community understood that Adonai's authority is only properly represented in a plurality of men that were unified. The very nature of the Godhead represents the divine to humanity in a plurality that is completely and singularly unified. Now, we would love to teach on that subject, but of course it's outside of our scope this evening. For now, every person listening to this recording needs to consider that a hierarchy in a single leader dictatorship is not biblical. So the question arises for every person. Do you want to experience the kingdom as the early church did? Yes! If you do, then shouldn't you model your decision-making after the biblical pattern that they displayed? Yes! Yes. Amen. Let's keep going on verse 23. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. So did you notice how the decision is being introduced in the beginning of the letter? Yep. Yes. 
Okay, we got a couple. We're going to help you. The function of the men writing is that they are apostles and elders. But their relationship to the men receiving the letter is that they are brothers. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 8. It'll be familiar to many of you. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Jesus recognized that the corrupted leaders in Judea had perverted the biblical system of authority by turning into it a hierarchy. He even said that they make twice the sons of hell that they already were. So pointed with the speech. The solution to this problem that is inherent to human nature is to regard all those you serve as your brothers. This is our primary relationship, regardless of our function or capacity that we serve the body of believers in. If anyone had the perceived right to be elevated above the others, it would have been Peter. I mean, he was the first man to raise the dead. But even Peter shows no hint of elevating himself beyond the other leaders or the congregants. Instead, the decision was reached in unity with other leaders and was delivered in unity with other brothers. Even the wording of the letter goes to great lengths to show the equality of every member within the body of Christ, whether they are Jew or Gentile. Saints, we're about to get into the body of the letter, but you should remember that we are reading a letter within a letter. What we mean is that the book of Acts is a letter to Theophilus, and within that letter, we are now reading the letter that affirmed the inclusion of Gentile believers while maintaining their national identity. Come on. It's impossible to know, but this may be the first time that Theophilus understands what went into him being accepted by the believing community. That's a mind-blowing thought. <laughs> Engaging this with the illusion of the first time should make this more meaningful to you. Have you ever really thought about why you're allowed to participate in the body of a Jewish king and messiah? Come on now. Have you ever really contemplated how you came to be included into the way that the kingdom promised to Israel would come about on the earth? Our inclusion is a mysterious one, but it has been in the mind of Adonai since ancient days. This letter is better than your acceptance letter for a new job. It's better than admission to an Ivy League school. Thanks. When you consider that, is that the way that you have traditionally read this chapter? No. No. Have you been guilty of taking your inclusion for granted? Yes. yes. Now would be a good time for us to thank Adonai. To thank Adonai for the leaders that have gone before us, who have operated in a biblical manner so that they came to Adonai's decision. Thanks, this is truly one of the most pivotal moments in church history. It is also the precursor to the restoration of Israel as a unified kingdom under the Davidic son. Amos foretold that after the inclusion of Gentiles, this would come to pass. Let's get verse 24 and look at it with fresh eyes. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization (laughs) and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. (laughs) Well, needless to say, and I'm going to do it anyway, unauthorized teachers have been a problem in every church since ancient days. This is the very thing that Shmiha was designed to avoid. It is important that each of you take this seriously. Our revelations should compare favorably with the doctrine of the apostles and the teachings of our existing leaders. 
our own new special insights should not be rushed forward to impress new audiences, but rather they should be tested and approved. Some of you may remember a guy named Apelles in Romans 16.10. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. How would you guys know if your latest insight is correct? How do you know if your scholarship was done correctly? One of the many reasons that so much false doctrine exists today is that men act in individual capacities. Wow. They represent themselves kind of like singular roaming prophets. The problem with this is that they are neither tested nor approved by anyone, and thus not accountable to anyone. What we should all be looking for is the agreement of the word and the spirit. Amen. You stand the best chance of arriving in this position by working in teams with other spirit-filled men. That way they can evaluate your findings in conjunction with their own understanding of the word and their experiences. Perhaps then a unifying opinion will become self-evident that agrees with the counsel of God's word and the experience of the other three witnesses. Of course, this alone does not guarantee that you get it right. You can ask me how I know that. <laughs> but inviting the scrutiny of other men and then allowing the body of Christ to evaluate your work over time as a community yeah. certainly gives you a much better chance yes. of getting it right. Yes. Let's pick up in verse 25. So we all agreed to choose some, some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas, uh, Barnabas Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. So not only does the Jerusalem community refer to Barnabas and Paul as dear friends, yeah. rather than exalted bishops, <laughs> but the community also sends their own representatives to confirm by word of mouth, what is plainly written in the letter. Come on. Doesn't it seem like the community in Jerusalem is taking every precaution to ensure that the Gentile community is protected? Yeah. Yes. The point is that no one is relying on their own ecclesiastical titles. Mm. They are relying on their joint status in the brotherhood oh, yeah. that is the body of Messiah. Amen. Verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Come on. You guys, consider the humility of the phrase here, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Yeah. This is the spirit in which fallible men come to unassailable conclusions. Let's look at the four major areas of concern that would represent an obstacle to joint table fellowship between believing Jews and Gentiles. Our next slide. Four main concerns. You will do well to avoid these things. Number one, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Number two, abstain from blood. Number three, abstain from meat of strangled animals. And number four, abstain from sexual immorality. The Jerusalem community could have commented on 613 laws and the differing relationship that a Jew and Gentile may have to each one. Additionally, 
They could have gone to great lengths to illustrate that many of the laws had the exact same application, whether Jew or Gentile. The point is that they did not do those things. There has been much discussion through the years regarding why the Jerusalem community wrote about these four issues as opposed to other things that they could have written about. So let's read Genesis 9 and touch on that subject. Let's do it. Genesis 9, this is after the flood, and starting in verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Right. It is clear that all mankind was given the contents of the earth for food. <laughs> yeah! Amen! <laughs> yeah. Later, the nation of Israel alone was given a more specialized diet to emphasize their national identity as a distinct people from all other nations. Oh, yeah. With that being said, all mankind was also told to avoid eating anything with blood still in it. So the Jerusalem community reminded their Gentile brothers to abstain from blood and the meat of strangled animals that may still contain blood. Not only would these things be seen for the Gentiles, i.e. you and me, they would also represent a substantial hurdle when fellowshipping with their Jewish believers, or brothers. The comments on food sacrifice to idols follows the same considerations. It may be possible to eat food sacrifice to idols without sinning, and Paul has instructions about that in 1 Corinthians 8. Right. But the Gentile believers are also benefited by breaking any connection with idolatry that has defined their lives and societies prior to this moment in history. It would be difficult to promote fellowship between believing Jews and believing Gentiles if every meal was associated with the worship of foreign gods. That's true. The goal of this command is mutually beneficial fellowship between two parties with different views on food. Now, lastly, the request for the believing Gentile community to avoid sexual immorality is just a little more complex than it appears. Sexual immorality is always sin, say always, always, under any circumstance for all human beings. However, the culture that the Gentile communities came from defines sexual immorality vastly different than the Tanakh does. This admonition is to avoid sexual this admonition to avoid sexual immorality has been taught by Moses since ancient days. The point is, is that the one that gets to define sexual immorality is not your culture. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible defines yeah. what sexual immorality is. So if a Roman says it is not adultery, which Rome taught, to sleep with somebody of a lower social standing, like a slave, while you were married, Moses trumps that culture. Yeah. There are not two different standards for sexual immorality as there might be for clothing or food. That is why they addressed it. Come on. That's good. Okay. So the letter is pretty straightforward, but issues undoubtedly arose in various circumstances. This is why Judas and Silas were sent to confirm by word of mouth any clarifications that may have been necessary. Next week you will learn that this letter was carried along with apostolic themes as they went into new Gentile communities. Additionally, as we noted earlier, epistles would have been written in future years to address the application of these ideas within the various communities outside of Israel, like Rome in Romans 14, or Corinth 
in 1 Corinthians 8. Yeah. Amen? Let's take verse 30. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Amen. Yeah. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Amen. So the messengers from Jerusalem were sent in Shalom and received in Shalom because the decision of the elders and apostles was effective in promoting table fellowship. The biblical model for decision-making was followed, and the results of the efficacy of their decision is the fruit that is born over time. You and I are validations of this decision. Yeah. 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 Clearly, the original issue of continued salvation for the Gentiles is no longer in question for the believing community. The only issue being addressed is how to recognize the mutual salvation of both groups and live in shalom with one another while maintaining different national identities and slightly different practices that are wholesome for both parties. So you guys remember how chapter breaks are not inspired? Yeah. This is one of those evenings where we disagree with the chapter break. <laughs> so Brother Linton's about to read our last verse for this evening, because next week we're going to pick up with a train of thought that sets all kinds of things into motion, moving into new nations and new areas of the world. Let's do 35, brother. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Look at our study of Acts. We have come to better understand how the people of ministry operate. Amen. Do you hear in verse 35 where it indicates that many others taught and preached the word of the Lord? This is not even Paul and Barnabas doing all of the preaching. Many others. There's a plurality of not only decision makers, but men and women participating in ministry as the people of ministry. We want to reaffirm that the story of Acts is the display of the body of Christ itself working to display both the deeds and teachings of Jesus while they all expand the kingdom of God to the very edges of the known world. Look, we're going to turn this meeting over to the pastors. We went five minutes over, but there is a note that I would like us to end on. It happens to reside on Carlos' phone because I simply got tired of typing. Carlos, do you mind sharing it with the body? Yeah. So you can see a contrast between two people that are going to another city, right? It's the contrast between those men that go from Jerusalem without authorization. Not only that starts a sharp debate and dispute in Antioch, but also in verse 24 it is said to disturb and trouble the minds of the disciples. And on the other hand, you have the people who went from Jerusalem authorized by the apostles, the elders, and the church. They go with, the, with this authorization and there is shalom when, they, when that happens. There is unification in the global body of Christ, as well as gladness and encouragement of the brothers. Amen. It is worthwhile to wait to be authorized to teach these things, isn't it? Yeah. Amen. It is worthwhile to be wait to be sent instead of going somewhere without any authorization whatsoever on your own. Come on, brother. Amen. Amen. <coughs> well, you guys learned something tonight? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. 
gain some practical understanding of how we function as the body yes. and the family of God. Yeah. A heart of servanthood is one of the highlighted elements that I heard in tonight's uh, teaching. And here's what I mean. To operate in team, to operate in unity, you have to start from a position that you're serving the interest of your brothers and not yourself. Yeah, come on now. So whenever James writes his letter and asks what causes fights and quarrels among you know, fights and quarrels usually emerge whenever everyone feels passionately about a subject, but more importantly, feels selfishly about a subject. I just want my point of doctrine to be heard. I want to be affirmed by those that surround me, my brothers. But if you repent and you turn from that, and you get rid of envy and selfish ambition, you then return to the state of being like your king. Amen. Wow. State of being a servant. James begins his letter by saying this in verse 1 of chapter 1. James, a servant of God. <laughs> and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the book of James for a number of reasons. He is direct. He doesn't pull any punches. Lovingly, but from a servant-hearted position. He states the truth about the condition of our own hearts. And he gives us solutions for it. See, what, what God has been doing since ancient times is that he is in the business of building leaders. Plural leaders. How is that not any different from what God is doing in our midst? Squash. Kill annihilate any ambition that seeks to climb a ladder within this church. Crush it. Number one, you won't get very far. God will cut off the legs of that ladder and you'll fall right down. But secondly, there's no ladder to climb. There is a unity of brotherhood that is not ascending vertically but instead, it's joined from shoulder to shoulder. Amen. Amen. Seek the benefit and welfare of those beside you, far and above your own. Amen. And watch that the unity of God is immediately displayed in any dispute that is a result between any one of you guys is easily settled with one singular thing, and that's the word. See, we're full of ambition. We can't hear what the word actually says. We only hear what we want to hear. But when you humble yourself, you're then able to join the already and existing counsel of what the word says. And all of a sudden, this tension and faction and dispute diffuses. And the body of Christ is edified and the kingdom is advanced. Stand to your feet so we can pray together. Mighty God, we come before you and we thank you that these men have urged us to live a life that is worthy of the calling. Lord, we are pursuing the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in this house. Lord, that we would die to our own diacrino, that we would die to our own selfish ambition. Lord, that we would value what you have done. You, God, who have set out your purpose 
from long ago, from ancient days, and have made it known to us, Lord, that we might walk, Lord, humbly and worthy of the calling that you have placed, that you might receive glory, that your kingdom might be advanced, Lord, and that your will might be done in each and every life. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.